Um, okay. Uh, welcome back. And uh, the uh, next speaker uh, is um, uh, Rick Lifton. And in my mind, uh, Rick is the uh, best example of uh, somebody who's interested in diseases. And instead of looking through the global everywhere, uh, taking a lesson from history and saying, well, why don't we just look at the extreme forms of dysfunction uh, that are genetic? Uh, try to understand those uh, genes and then figure out uh, how the more, uh, you know, global, uh, as uh, Neil would have it, low risk uh, ratio uh, things work. And that has been, in, in this case, uh, maybe because of the approach and maybe because of the operator, uh, extremely successful. And I think he's going to tell you more about how uh, you get biology into uh, disease finding. Oh. Thanks, David. It's uh, a real thrill to uh, have the opportunity to be here today uh, on this uh, wonderful occasion. Um, I have a number of connections uh, to uh, this institute, uh, both through uh, your new president of the university, who I got to know uh, uh, when we served together when she was uh, chairing the uh, oversight committee for the human genome uh, sequencing project, uh, to the new director, uh, Dr. Botstein, uh, who really is the father of uh, this entire area uh, that I'll be talking about. Uh, and also to uh, Paul Sigler, for whom uh, the new building uh, is named, and I'll highlight uh, some of the work that uh, I had the opportunity to collaborate uh, uh, with Paul uh, on. I have, however, found uh, a few things uh, objectionable in my time here. Probably the most uh, objectionable was a comment made uh, by David earlier this morning uh, when he uh, said that he doesn't have much ability to see into the scientific future. That's one of the most absurd comments that I've heard in a long time. Uh, my first exposure to David was uh, I was a second-year graduate student in the biochemistry department at Stanford, and uh, uh, David came out to uh, give a talk. I was invited by Dale Kaiser. David came out and talked about uh, the new emerging field of uh, trans transposable elements in bacteria. He talked for an hour and a half about all of the things that you were going to be able to do now that these elements uh, had been identified. And at the end, we're all left quite speechless, except for Dale. And those of you who know Dale, he's a, a quite retiring fellow. He got up and he gushed, uh, David, that's the first time I've ever heard a textbook written before the first experiment has been done. <laughs> Well, this, of course, was not unique to uh, this event because the paper that's been alluded to uh, uh, several times already in 1980, recognizing that we would be able to use variation in DNA sequence uh, to be able to build uh, human genetic maps, uh, really came quite uh, uh, as, a, as a remarkable idea. And the idea that you would be able to use the, this polymorphism to build human maps every bit as good as those that we already had in uh, Drosophila uh, and yeast and be able to use that to map human traits was really a revolutionary idea and really inspired me to uh, move from uh, the investigation of Drosophila genetics uh, into human genetics. And the reason uh, that uh, we thought human would be an interesting model uh, to study is that uh, human is actually a great model. The, uh, suffice to say that in the absence of genetic variation, 
we all look remarkably like one another. This slide showing four pairs of identical twins, I think, nicely illustrates the point that in the absence of genetic variation, there's stunningly little variation in these gross phenotypic features, ranging from gross features such as height and weight, uh, body habitus, but also very subtle features of uh, shading of hair color, uh, fine feature features of facial structure, uh, behavioral traits such as taste and clothing. All of these clearly have <laughs> strong genetic uh, uh, contributions. And of course, this led us to wonder whether there are also genetic contributions to uh, human genetic disease. And uh, Mike Brown and Joe Goldstein have uh, uh, pointed out uh, long ago the paradox of Jim Fix and Winston Churchill. So for all of us who want to believe that uh, healthy lifestyle is the determinant factor, we really need to consider this paradox. Jim Fix, 5'10", 150. Winston Churchill, 5'8", 270. Fix was a marathon runner. Churchill was slothful in his behavior. Fix a healthy lifestyle promoter. Churchill was legendary for his gluttony. And yet, despite this striking difference in lifestyle, Fix died of a heart attack at age 52 while running. Churchill, a heavy smoker, died peacefully at age 90. <laughs> so, of course, there was one thing that Fix had uh, going against him that in retrospect turned out to be the unfortunate telling factor, and that is he had a striking family history. His father had died of a heart attack at the age of 43, uh, and it, I think one uh, would strongly suspect that he had uh, a, a strong inherited predisposition uh, to this unfortunate uh, outcome. Well, so how, the question, of course, is how can we find these genes? And as we've heard about uh, earlier today, there's this wonderful paradigm of positional cloning of disease genes. We can collect and characterize family segregating traits, genotype markers across the genome, compare the inheritance of chromosome segments to the inheritance of disease in these families, identify genes in the linked interval, and try to find genes uh, in the linked interval that alter function. And when we find mutations that segregate with the disease, that show specificity for the disease, in a simple Mendelian paradigm, we can be quite confident that we found the underlying uh, disease gene. So the utility of this, of course, is that uh, it provides the opportunity to identify new pathways that underlie basic physiology of health and disease. Uh, critically, it can identify new targets and pathways for early diagnosis and therapeutic intervention. And finally, there are likely to be many diseases with strong genetic effects that we haven't even yet recognized. So. One thing that I would like to uh, take a step back from, because most of the uh, movement in human genetics these days is increasingly toward uh, complex multifactorial traits, I think it's important to consider the contributions uh, of the understanding of rare diseases. Uh, these may provide novel insight into the gene products and pathways that can be uh, manipulated uh, for health benefit. Uh, and the treatment, uh, critically, may not need to be confined to those rare patients with uh, uh, mutations in uh, disease pathways but instead may be highly relevant to the general population. So the basic idea is if we understand the pathways that are underlying these common traits, we may be able to manipulate them in people who don't have mutations in the pathways, at least that we can recognize. There is, of course, one very dominant example of this already, and that is uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, a disease that affects one in a million in the population. And the understanding of this disease uh, proved the causal relationship between cholesterol and early heart attack. And we now treat tens of millions of uh, Americans based on this information by targeting the specific enzymes involved in the uh, cholesterol biosynthetic pathway. So this principle, I think, is quite well founded, raising the question of uh, can we apply this to other important areas. So 
One area that seems uh, obviously ripe for uh, approach is uh, the understanding of uh, heart disease. Uh, despite dramatic reductions due largely thus far to reductions in smoking in the population over the last 40 years, there's been a dramatic decrease in the incidence of uh, heart disease and stroke, and yet these remain the number one and number three causes of death uh, in, the, in the United States, uh, vastly outnumbering virtually all other uh, forms of uh, causes of death. And one of the major uh, risk factors for uh, heart, cardiovascular disease is uh, hypertension. Hypertension is probably the most uh, common disease of the industrialized world. It affects more than 20% of the adult uh, population. Uh, it's simply defined as a blood arterial pressure of 140 over 90 uh, millimeters mercury, greater than this factor. Uh, this is a major risk factor for death from stroke, heart attack, congestive heart failure, and end-stage renal disease. And critically, although we're treating uh, 50 million Americans for this disease, its pathogenesis has been unknown in the overwhelming majority of cases. And as a consequence, the treatment is suboptimal. We use uh, one of approximately 70 different drugs to lower uh, blood pressure, and it's purely empiric. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we try another drug. And as a consequence, this remains uh, the largest expense in the U.S. healthcare budget overall. So why don't we understand the physiology of this disease? Well, Arthur Guyton uh, put together a uh, diagram, uh, the, the wiring diagram of the control of uh, blood pressure in the human body. And this is what the wiring diagram ended up looking like. So unlike the nice linear pathway of cholesterol homeostasis, where it's pretty easy to pick out uh, what the key target is, it's pretty hard to go through this, uh, a system that uh, can only be explored uh, in the intact uh, living organism, and try to decide, is this, uh, where, where are the primary abnormalities that influence this trait? And so it occurred to us that this would be a worthy challenge. Can we go in and, tr and try to use these new genetic approaches uh, to begin to understand the pathogenesis of this uh, clearly very complicated trait? And the expectation at the end of the day is that it's going to be in the general population a highly multifactorial trait with contributions from multiple genes, environmental, and demographic factors in any single individual. And so how should you think about attacking this uh, problem? And of course, coming out of a model organism uh, uh, background, uh, it occurred to me that when uh, Yanni Nusslein and Eric Reichhaus went out trying to find the genes that underlie development in Drosophila, they didn't start by looking at variation in natural occurring populations, they went out and they created extreme mutations that allowed them to discern large effects on the pathway. And this, of course, identified uh, all of the molecules that fall into this pathway. And so we thought about how could we take a comparable approach to human. And as David indicated in uh, the introduction, the approach that we chose to take was to go to the extremes of the distribution, not looking for genes that uh, provide subtle uh, incremental increases in blood pressure, but to see if we could find genes that drive blood pressure to the very extreme end of the uh, blood pressure distribution, and then study the families of those individuals to see if we can find Mendelian forms of this trait in which there are single genes with large effect. I benefited enormously from what had gone on before me in this field. Namely, when I talked to senior investigators in the field, they all told me that this was a crazy idea, that going back and looking at this wiring diagram, you would never find single genes that affected blood pressure. And as a consequence, nobody had really ever tried. So I, this, this was a great boon to my early career. The other aspect that we thought about is that just as there are genes that raise blood pressure, 
Perhaps there are also going to be genes that drive blood pressure to the other end of the distribution, and that these would be genes that we could think of as being healthy genes. And if you think about this from the possibility of pharma uh, pharmaceutical development, a loss of function mutation, were we so fortunate as to find one, that uh, uh, drove blood pressure to the low end of the distribution, might end up being a good model for what an antagonist of a gene product that you might actually use as a pharmaceutical agent uh, might do. And so we ought to be interested in finding genes on what we would think of as uh, the healthy end of the distribution as well. And I'll return to how we approach that problem. So the most intriguing aspect of uh, the work to date is that uh, we've taken this approach, and in the case of blood pressure, we've now identified mutations in six genes that will drive blood pressure to the high end of the distribution, another eight genes that will drive blood pressure to the low end of the distribution. And there's a very interesting punchline to this story, and that is that all of the genes that we've identified to date fall into a single final common pathway of changing how the kidney handles salt. Now this is particularly noteworthy since when we started, hypertension was variously proposed to be a primary disease of the brain or of the adrenal gland or of the vasculature or of the kidney. Uh, and as a consequence, finding that all of these genes fall into a single final common pathway is quite illuminating. So every day, the normal kidney filters about one and a half uh, grams of salt. And if you're eating a, a typical uh, uh, high salt diet in the United States uh, that might uh, have a couple of grams of salt in it uh, per day, you have to reabsorb all but about 1% of the filtered load. And each uh, nephron has a highly integrated means of doing this by reabsorbing salt through four main salt retaining pathways. And this whole process is regulated by the renin-angiotensin system that regulates this final step that normally re re uh, mediates the reabsorption of just 2% of a filtered load of salt. But since this is the main regulated step, this, is, this uh, net step uh, provides the, uh, the, the major determinant of net salt reabsorption on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, all of the mutations we found thus far act in this pathway, and all of these have started by identification of rare patients with early severe hypertension. So for example, this first disease, uh, Little Syndrome, starting with a 12-year-old girl with a blood pressure of 180 over 110. Uh, she had family members with early onset of severe hypertension. Physiologically, these patients have suppression of the renin-angiotensin system. But we demonstrated early on that this was a simple autosomal dominant trait with high penetrance segregating through these families, permitting us to apply this positional cloning paradigm, which ultimately led to our demonstration that this disease is caused by gain-of-function mutations in the epithelial sodium channel, that channel that mediates the reabsorption of the last 2% of the filtered load of salt. So mutations in either the beta or the gamma subunit of this uh, sodium channel uh, cause this disease, and these mutations all chop off or modify uh, single amino acids in the cytoplasmic uh, C-termini of these subunits. And biochemically, we've gone on to demonstrate that the mechanism of this uh, is that these cytoplasmic tails contain a signal required for clearance of these channels from the cell surface by endocytosis via clathrin-coated pits. So if you chop off or modify this uh, PPPXY uh, uh, signal sequence, these channels acquire a very long half-life at the cell surface, and they're active. And the consequence of this is quite predictable. These channels uh, at, at high level, uh, high activity, mediate increased reabsorption of salt, Plasma volume expands because water follows to maintain the isotonicity of the blood. 
This increases venous uh, blood return to the heart, and the heart, being an obliging pump, simply pumps out more blood. And by Ohm's law, this raises blood pressure, resulting in sustained hypertension. The body tries to compensate by turning off the renin-angiotensin system, the signal that normally regulates the activity of this channel, but that fails to turn off uh, the process uh, because these channels can't be tuned down by their normal physiologic mechanism. So we can explain the uh, physiology, the hypertension, and the genetics on the basis of these mutations. A second example is another rare Mendelian form of hypertension, uh, characterized by a six-week-old infant with severe hypertension brought to the hospital because of a seizure. Uh, we studied the extended family and found that uh, this also was an transmitted as an autosomal dominant trait with high penetrance. Uh, death from stroke before age 45 is common in this syndrome. These patients uh, have uh, suppressed renin but high aldosterone levels, a tip that there's going to be something abnormal in this pathway. And when we study these patients physiologically, there's a very unusual feature, which is aldosterone, this uh, steroid hormone that uh, regulates the activity of the epithelial sodium channel, is regulated by the wrong secretagogue. It's regulated by ACTH rather than its uh, usual secretagogue, angiotensin II. Again, following this paradigm, we demonstrated that the uh, mutation that causes this disease is a very unusual mutation that fuses regulatory sequences from one gene onto coding sequences from another. These two genes involved in steroid biosynthesis are uh, linked in tandem to one another. They've recently evolved from a common ancestor. They're still 95% identical in DNA sequence. And occasionally, they can recombine uh, with one another. And this unequal crossing over event creates a new gene, a gene duplication that's not present on normal chromosomes. And this fuses the regulatory sequences of 11-hydroxylase onto coding sequences of aldosterone synthase. This gene is the rate-limiting step for aldosterone biosynthesis, that key regulatory hormone. And so as a consequence, this mutation results in ectopic expression of uh, this uh, uh, rate-limiting enzyme in the wrong part of the adrenal gland. So as a consequence of this mutation, aldosterone synthase enzymatic activity is expressed in the wrong part of the adrenal gland. It's now controlled by the uh, five-prime regulatory sequence that uh, is regulated by ACTH rather than angiotensin II. And this is a, simply a gain-of-function mutation. There's a new uh, function that uh, is not present in normal individuals. These patients are secreting aldosterone all the time and, again, falling into this final pathway of increased salt and water retention as a consequence of, uh, in this case, uh, an unregulated secretion of a hormone. So we've been working through this pathway, and uh, not too long ago, we got the idea that uh, we now routinely get sent families from around the world, or at least patients from around the world, with early severe hypertension. And we get several hundred of these a year with the request that we screen them for mutations in these genes that we've identified. And so we have uh, collected uh, some 750 of these patients with early severe hypertension. Uh, about 10% of them end up having mutations in one of these two genes that uh, I've told you about thus far. And it occurred to David Geller in the lab that uh, now that we begin to see this uh, pathway becoming more uh, involved, we ought to be thinking about non-genetic, non-purely genetic approaches and perhaps genomic approaches. And David Geller started simply resequencing genes in the pathway in patients with early severe hypertension that was otherwise unexplained. 
So one of these was a 15-year-old boy with severe hypertension, suppressed renin, suppressed aldosterone levels, uh, and no obvious explanation for his hypertension. And he found, simply by resequencing the mineralocorticoid receptor, this is the receptor that aldosterone binds to, tells the epithelial sodium channel to be more active, he found a single missense mutation uh, in this uh, uh, member of the nuclear hormone receptor family. And this uh, was a relatively innocuous uh, uh, variant, substituting leucine for serine uh, in the ligand binding uh, domain. Now, of course, this might have nothing to do with the disease. How would you go about trying to decide whether this was a functionally important mutation or irrelevant? Well, we could think of two ways uh, to do this. One of them was a, a clinical approach, uh, basically building the family around the identified mutation. And when David went back and, ex and examined the extended family from which this uh, uh, boy uh, had come, he found that, uh, indeed, everybody who had inherited this same mutation in the mineralocorticoid receptor had been diagnosed with hypertension before age 20. But since different physicians were seeing all of these patients, nobody had really put together the idea that this was an unusual family uh, with a simple Mendelian form of hypertension, which it turned out to be. The odds of this co-segregation occurring by chance alone are less than 1 in 100,000, providing pretty good genetic evidence that this was a new Mendelian form of hypertension that had not been previously recognized. Well, we could also study this biochemically, and David went on to do this. So he expressed the wild type and the mutant mineralocorticoid receptor in mammalian cells, and then uh, read out their expression on a promoter that, MMTV pr uh, promoter that uh, is specific for the mineralocorticoid receptor, and read this out in a luciferase uh, uh, assay. And compared to the wild-type receptor, he found that the mutant receptor was partially active in the absence of any added steroid, which it could perhaps explain part of the uh, uh, effect of this mutation in vivo. But more impressively, he went on to test other steroids uh, that normally bind but fail to activate the wild-type receptor. And what he found most strikingly was an entire class of steroids that normally bind but fail to activate, steroids that lack 21 hydroxyl groups, such as progesterone, now are potent activators of the receptor, just like the wild-type receptor is activated by aldosterone. So here's a single amino acid substitution that has drastically changed the, uh, uh, the steroid specificity of the uh, receptor. Uh, and this, of course, got us to wondering how could this uh, possibly work. And this is where Paul Sickler came into uh, uh, the equation. Uh, I mentioned these results uh, to Paul, and Paul, of course, had determined the crystal structure of the estrogen and progesterone receptors, which are quite similar in their ligand binding domains. And so uh, in collaboration with Paul, uh, we built uh, a, a speculative model of the ligand binding domain of the mineralocorticoid receptor. And here I just want to pause for a moment to uh, comment, make a, a few comments uh, about Paul for those of you who uh, never knew him. Uh, Paul was a real force of nature. He was uh, a, one of the spectacular crystallographers of uh, the last 50 years. And the part that really set Paul apart and made him great was that he never heard about a scientific issue that he was not interested in. And uh, when I was a starting assistant professor uh, at Yale, uh, one of the first people in my office uh, after I arrived was, was Paul, who sat down and said, tell me about what you're working on. And he was interested in everything. And uh, so as a consequence, when we got to this problem, uh, I ran into Paul and I mentioned it to him. And he said, oh, you've got to come over this afternoon. And so for the next 12 hours, uh, from a 
from 2 in the afternoon to uh, 2 in the morning, we sat down and looked at crystal structures of uh, the mineralocorticoid receptor that uh, we had uh, engineered. And we fairly quickly hit on the idea that this single amino acid substitution was uh, reaching across from its normal position in helix 5 and interacting with helix 3. And the part that was interesting about this potential van der Waals interaction was that it was one turn of the helix away from the normal interaction site for the 21-hydroxyl group and helix 3. And as I mentioned, the steroids that are now able to activate the mutant receptor are those that are lacking 21-hydroxyl groups. And so we thought maybe this interaction was substituting for this interaction, and it suggested a series of experiments, which David went on to do, where he made uh, side chain substitutions both here and here of varying lengths and showed that all of those that were able to make van der Waals interactions across this barrier uh, were now able to activate the receptor in the absence of a 21-hydroxyl group on the steroid, and all of those that didn't could not. And this provided a very nice molecular explanation uh, for how this uh, uh, worked. And my only regret is that uh, Paul uh, uh, unfortunately died in the middle of this uh, uh, work and never saw the final uh, uh, product. This also makes a very specific prediction, however. At the time, we just defined this as a molecular for new Mendelian form of hypertension, but this strongly, this finding that progesterone is capable of activating the mutant receptor made a very specific clinical prediction. When women normally become pregnant, their progesterone levels go up by a hundredfold. Uh, well, if this is really working in vivo, these women ought to have progesterone levels that are capable of potently activating the mineralocorticoid receptor, and these women ought to have extremely severe pregnancy-induced hypertension. This is another major public health problem, complicating about 6% of all pregnancies worldwide, and its pathogenesis is largely unknown. Well, of course, in retrospect, we went back and looked at what happened in pregnancy in women carrying this mutation. And what we found was that, indeed, they had had, uh, un un really unrecognized by uh, the physicians taking care of them, probably the worst pregnancy-induced hypertension uh, ever recorded. So this shows the pregnancy record of one of these women. She, uh, uh, at week nine, was, so blood pressure normally goes down and stays down throughout pregnancy. Her blood pressure demonstrated an inexorable rise, going from 120 over 90 at week nine of her pregnancy, rising to 160 over 120. Uh, uh, Antihypertensive drug was added, and it kept on rising. And at week 34, when her blood pressure hit 210 over 120, her physicians became very alarmed and took her for cesarean section. She delivered a healthy child. All five pregnancies in this family uh, follow this pattern, uh, demonstrating that this is the first example of a Mendelian form of another common disease, uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension. And it tells you that this disease can result from the abnormal action of a normal hormone of pregnancy. And it gives us some ideas of where else we ought to be looking for genes that contribute to this disease. So I've told you about a number of genes that promote high blood pressure, and I've mentioned that we ought to be interested in genes that lower blood pressure as well. Now, the problem is how are you going to find these uh, uh, families to study? Because we have hypertension clinics, we don't have hypotension clinics. So the ascertainment is going to be more problematic. So it occurred to us that we might go to the really far end of the distribution and look for children with life-threatening hypotension in the neonatal period. And the first of these diseases is uh, this mouthful pseudohypoaldosteronism type 1, uh, typified by a two-day-old boy near death with undetectable blood pressure. He has massive salt wasting despite high renin and high aldosterone levels. He also has high serum potassium level, low serum pH level, and his parents are first cousins. 
I want to make the comment here about another contribution uh, that uh, David Botstein has made uh, to our work in human genetics in general. Uh, he and Lander published uh, a paper about homozygosity mapping years ago. The recognition that uh, there's a tremendous amount of genetic information uh, in offspring of consanguineous union, where you can get uh, very large uh, 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 linkage signals from single affected individuals by this uh, approach of homozygosity mapping, because these individuals will have not just the identical mutation on both alleles, but they will also be homozygous across large chromosome segments. So this has permitted us to map a number of recessive diseases by studying families ascertained in the Middle East where there is a common consanguinity. So the recessive form of PHA1 turns out to be due to loss of function mutations in the epithelial sodium channel, that same channel in which gain of function mutations cause hypertension. And in this case, loss of this channel results in massive salt wasting, activation of the renin angiotensin system, but this fails to augment salt reabsorption because the normal target for activation of the mineralocorticoid receptor is missing. There's an important outcome of this study, which is that it tells you that if you're missing this channel, you're in big trouble. And this came as a surprise to endocrinologists who had believed for uh, the last 30 years that this channel is completely regulated by the renin-angiotensin system, and if you're eating a high-salt diet and you turn off the renin-angiotensin system, you'll be fine because this channel isn't doing anything. Well, this, the finding that people who are missing this channel uh, are in extremis uh, throughout their lives and need to take uh, massive salt supplementation on the order of 20 to 30 grams a day tells you that this construct is completely wrong. This channel is essential for normal homeostasis, uh, and uh, this, uh, which I'll return to later, uh, really resurrects this uh, as a good target for new antihypertensive uh, uh, agents that the pharmaceutical industry is now pursuing. So we have what we thought was a, now a pretty good proof of principle. Genes that increased activity of this uh, channel raised blood pressure. Genes that uh, decreased activity of this channel lower blood pressure. And this got us to thinking, what would be the phenotypes that would result from mutations in these other salt-retaining pathways? And here is where uh, understanding a little bit about medicine and physiology uh, helped a lot. And in a very short period of time, not on a Saturday morning, but not much longer than that, we are able to put together uh, the identification of four additional genes that affected blood pressure. One of these is a disease called Gittleman syndrome, uh, characterized by a 27-year-old woman who came into an emergency room with paralysis in the first trimester of her first pregnancy. She had very low serum potassium. She had uh, a, a lot of salt in her urine, high renin and high aldosterone. And the question was, in the emergency room, what was the diagnosis? It was eventually concluded in the emergency room that uh, she was taking diuretics because a psychiatrist who saw her concluded that she had failed to bond with uh, her unborn fetus and she was uh, trying to abuse uh, herself and the fetus. She was put in a locked psychiatric facility for two weeks uh, and a physician rounding in place of the psychiatrist over the weekend, an internist, asked the simple question, well, if she's been in the uh, locked facility for two weeks, why does she still have a potassium level of one? It's a good question. Well, this turns out to be an autosomal recessive disease that is caused by loss of function mutations in this specific sodium chloride co-transporter of this nephron segment in the kidney. And this results in salt wasting, activation of the renin-angiotensin system, and in this case, uh, 
activation of the renin-angiotensin system can defend intravascular volume because the epithelial sodium channel is present, but this occurs at the expense of uh, making the lumen more electronegative, uh, promoting the secretion of potassium and hydrogen, accounting for hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis. Now, this is a relatively modest uh, disease under most circumstances, raising the question of whether genes that lower salt balance just a little bit actually affect blood pressure. So to test that, we can study extended families such as this one. This is a family that landed in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in the uh, late uh, 17th century. Uh, they've gone forth and prospered, and Dina Cruz in the lab has studied 200 of their descendants. And now that we know the specific mutations in this family, we can genotype those individuals as having zero, one, or two mutant copies of the gene and ask what are the clinical consequences on blood pressure. And what Dina found was that individuals who inherit two mutant copies indeed have about eight millimeter lower blood pressure than their wild type brothers and sisters, and there's no significant effect in the heterozygotes. This effect was a little bit less than what we had uh, guessed it would be, and we wondered whether these individuals might actually be compensating for their inherited defect in some way, and one obvious way would be that they might actually be self-selecting a high salt diet. So to test that, we simply studied their steady-state salt intake by measuring their 24-hour sodium excretion. And what we found was that these individuals are, in fact, eating a lot more salt than their wild-type brothers and sisters. So the wild-type here, uh, the two individuals with two mutant copies here, and the individuals, the heterozygotes, in fact, actually do have a phenotype. They're eating more salt, but they're able to return their blood pressure uh, toward normal. I would stop here and make uh, one point, which is I've been telling you that salt is an important determinant of blood pressure. Why has the epidemiologic relationship between salt and blood pressure been so difficult to pin down? Well, one reason is that we may be confounding families such as these with families uh, that are eating salt for other reasons. You will notice in this family, the individuals with the lowest blood pressure are the ones who are eating the most salt. So there's actually the converse relationship between what you would intuit. But the reason is they're compensating for a primary salt-wasting diathesis. Uh, and we think that this, uh, these types of families likely begin to explain why the epidemiologic relationship is so confounded. And it's only when you really understand what's going on in individual patients and families, that these relationships can begin to uh, come together. I'll simply mention quickly uh, the related area of barter syndrome, severe salt wasting in the neonatal period uh, with uh, uh, severe hypotension and uh, death in the neonatal period unless a diagnosis is made. And here we've now identified four genes that uh, uh, can cause this phenotype. And these define the pathway by which salt gets from the lumen into the bloodstream in the thick ascending limb of Henle. So the entry step is a specific co-transporter, sodium potassium 2-chloride. This gets sodium and chloride into the cell. It has to traverse the basolateral membrane, uh, which it does, uh, as we demonstrated, by mutations in the chloride channel or an accessory subunit uh, that, uh, when mutated, give a phenotype very similar to this. And there's also a potassium channel that mediates the recycling of potassium that comes in back into the lumen. And if you knock out this potassium channel, you run out of potassium in the lumen to drive this process. These are all phenocopies of one another. And importantly, they define some new targets uh, for antihypertensive treatments that I'll return to later. 
So I want to make uh, a brief segue into uh, another area. I've been trying to point out the value of rare families for telling you uh, important things about fundamental pathways important to biology. Uh, and I'll give you one example where uh, I think a study of a single family has told us something very important about uh, bone density. So osteoporosis is a major public health problem, a million fractures a year in the elderly population. Death following hip fracture in the elderly is 25 to 30 percent at one year. This is a serious problem. We had the good fortune to come across a very unusual man. This was uh, perhaps the living equivalent of uh, uh, the movie in which the fellow has the train wreck and uh, uh, unbreakable. So this 49-year-old man in a car accident taken for routine uh, x-rays, uh, and he had no fractures. But the radiologist on call said, you know, this guy's got the highest bone density I've ever seen. He sent him for a referral to uh, uh, Carl and Sonia at Yale, who proved that this guy was exactly right. So this is his z-score for bone density in the spine and the hip. The z-score is the number of standard deviations out from the mean of the general population. <laughs> Eric can do this calculation. This is in the, in the one in several billion. Uh, so this is perhaps the guy with the highest bone density on the planet. So they asked us, you know, is there anything you can do with this? And we said, well, sure, let's see if this is a Mendelian trait. Well, it turned out that it was. And we were able to map this uh, to a segment uh, uh, on, on chromosome 12 and demonstrate that uh, this indeed is segregating as a Mendelian trait. And the mutation that causes it turns out to be in a quite unexpected pathway. Uh, this is uh, the, in the Wnt signaling pathway in one of the uh, uh, co-receptors uh, uh, for Wnt uh, called LRP5, the uh, LDL receptor-related protein type 5. And the mutation that causes the disease is a single amino acid substitution in one of the propeller domains that substitutes uh, a valine for glycine. And as you can see, this glycine residue uh, present in uh, the fourth blade of the propeller uh, is uh, extraordinarily high conserved across evolution, uh, all the way from the Drosophila arrow uh, homologue all the way up uh, through human, suggesting that this was indeed of, of functional significance. And we were able to demonstrate biochemically that it was uh, by uh, looking at uh, uh, in vitro at its function. And what we found was that uh, compared to the wild-type receptor, the mutant receptor was no longer susceptible to the inhibitory effects of the natural inhibitor DKK. So this uh, uh, single family has told us something important about the regulation of bone density. Namely, if you activate uh, wind signaling via LRP5, uh, you will raise bone density. And we showed biochemically that this occurs by uh, increasing the synthetic rate of bone and uh, indicates that uh, if, uh, in the absence of uh, DKK inhibition via LRP5, uh, that bone density is raised. Importantly, these families, and we now have studied uh, six families with uh, the same or closely related mutations in LRP5, their only phenotype is high bone density. They don't have surprisingly adverse phenotypes that you might have expected by uh, activation of the Wnt signaling pathway. In fact, the only other thing that they're notable for is uh, quite extraordinary longevity, which the family itself has recognized as traveled through their family. And it makes the specific prediction that uh, pharmacologic inhibition of DKK binding or action at LRP5 uh, would likely raise bone density by increasing normal bone formation without adverse clinical consequences. And again, this is the kind of thing that the pharmaceutical industry uh, has seized upon. And there uh, are at least five that are now working uh, to try to develop uh, small molecule agonists that, that uh, do what uh, these mutations do. 
So, as we've heard about uh, from Neil and Eric, one of the challenges going forward is uh, finding genes for common disease. And as we discussed a little bit at lunch, one of the major challenges is how many genes influence any trait and how large is the effect by any single locus. And of course, we don't know the answer to that. We're very good in genetics at counting up to one and very bad at counting uh, beyond one. And we can't tell the difference between two genes, three genes, or 50 and 100. And so one approach early on, before we really get into uh, the high-throughput genomics, is to think about are there ways to recognize those cases where there are a small number of genes with large effect. And for dominant traits, we've known about the ability to collect loaded families, a good example being Mary Claire King and uh, breast cancer. And we've uh, identified a few additional examples of this, such as IgA nephropathy, where there are dominant traits where there are single genes with relatively large effect. Uh, but it's led us to think about the question of how about recessive genes with incomplete penetrance, single genes with large effect but reduced penetrance? How could we recognize those? Well, if you do the simple Gedanken experiment, what would those look like in the general population? You quickly realize that what they would look like in the general population is sporadic disease. You'd have uh, single cases in families, occasional recurrence within sibships, uh, but not much more than that. But it occurred to us that if we looked in consanguineous populations, uh, we would see, we might expect to see increased disease prevalence, increased rate of consanguinity among cases compared to the surrounding uh, population, and we ought to be able to map these. And so over the last several years, I've challenged uh, physician scientists coming into the lab to go to the Middle East and look for diseases that jump out as being more common than they would expect from their clinical experience in the U.S. Finally, Aryamani took me up on this proposition, and he went to Tehran to the major cardiovascular referral hospital. And after a week there, he said, you know, there's a tremendous amount of term patent ductus arteriosus here. This is a common congenital heart disease in the United States uh, of, uh, thought to be of multifactorial causation. The ductus arteriosus uh, in fetal life shunts blood uh, away from the lungs, since we're not using it to oxygenate blood, into the systemic circulation. And at birth, this artery is uh, dramatic, uh, under goes dramatic vascular remodeling, uh, leading to the adult uh, uh, circulatory pattern. Well, this disease in Iran meets all of the criteria that we set. Its prevalence is 15% uh, of all congenital heart disease compared to 5% in the U.S. Sibling recurrence rate is comparable in Iran and the U.S., but the prevalence of consanguinity is dramatically higher. The general Iranian population is 25% in the north. Tetralogy of Fallot, another disease, had 30%, not much of a difference. But patent ductus arteriosus in Tehran was 63% uh, from consanguinous union, suggesting that we ought to be able to prove that this was a single gene uh, with recessive inheritance uh, in at least a significant fraction of families. And when we brought families back to the United States and did linkage analysis, it turns out that about half of them are homozygous for the same segment of human chromosome 12, uh, providing uh, a lot score of uh, about six and a half. So this is very good evidence uh, that uh, there is a single gene with uh, large effect uh, for this disease, that it's commonly a recessive trait uh, with incomplete penetrance, uh, and these likely have implications for understanding uh, this disease, not just in Iran, but uh, in the rest of the world as well. And we suspect that there are going to be other diseases like this. And we ought to be attuned to the idea that uh, there are many diseases that are genetic that we haven't yet recognized. So in the last couple of minutes, I'll close with uh, our most recent uh, work, which has identified a new pathway that affects blood pressure that we previously knew nothing about. Starts with a 27-year-old woman with hypertension and high serum potassium levels. Uh, she has a number of other phenotypes that go along with this. 
And to make a long story short, we were unbelievably lucky to find the disease gene because this disease in, uh, linked to chromosome 12 is caused by intronic deletions, about the worst case that you could hope for to try to found, find mutations. You think about how you look for mutations. You amplify pieces of DNA and you look for sequence variation. Well, if you've got a 40 KB deletion, the likelihood that you're going to find that mutation is very small because if your primers lie within this, you're not going to find it, right? Well, we were unbelievably lucky because one of the markers that we genotyped in a family linked to chromosome 12 turned out to lie within the deleted segment, and it gave the appearance of misinheritance. Every affected individual was homozygous for a different allele of, uh, uh, of the uh, uh, marker, and as a consequence, we realized that there was likely a deletion. So it turns out that there are independent uh, intronic deletions in this gene. Uh, this turns out to be a novel serine threonine kinase called WNK1. Uh, it, it, uh, circumstantial evidence in lymphocytes of uh, patients, expression of this gene is, uh, is elevated. But the, the proof that this is uh, a functional mutation uh, rests on independent mutations in uh, different families causing this. Of course, now that the whole genome sequence is available, we're able to look for additional uh, uh, versions of uh, this kinase, and there are three other versions around the genome. And interestingly, one of them turns out to lie on chromosome 17, to which we had previously mapped another gene for this disease. And it turns out that uh, in WNK4, there are independent missense mutations, but all of the missense mutations cluster within a 10-amino uh, acid sequence that is highly conserved among uh, all members of this family. And what these mutations are specifically doing is uh, quite unknown. So what are these kinases doing? Well, we've shown that uh, they're both present in the distal nephron, in the part of the kidney that regulates uh, salt uh, and potassium and hydrogen uh, ion balance, suggesting that uh, this is likely uh, the, the means by which these are affecting blood pressure in humans. Uh, this is immunocytohistochemistry. I don't know if it's visible uh, uh, in the back. It's not from where I am. Uh, but it shows that uh, WNK1 is present in the distal convoluted tubule uh, and the uh, collecting duct. Importantly, this suggested what the target might be, and we've been able to uh, fairly rapidly go on to demonstrate that uh, WNK1 and WNK4 uh, are a, a kinase uh, pathway that regulates the activity of this sodium chloride co-transporter, the co-transporter that loss of function mutation in causes uh, the disease Gittleman syndrome, uh, which I told you about. Now, what these kinases uh, are, it lies what lies upstream is still uh, entirely unknown, uh, but clearly this is a new signaling pathway that uh, had not been appreciated from physiologic analysis. And this may be of more general interest than just uh, playing a role in uh, hypertension. It turns out that uh, WNK1 is widely expressed around the body and uh, is expressed exclusively in epithelia that transport chloride. So it's expressed in the large pancreatic ducts, in the bile ducts in the liver, in the sweat ducts in the skin, uh, and in the epididymis. Now, uh, those of you who know something about cystic fibrosis will recognize that this is, these are the same tissues that are affected by the pathology in cystic fibrosis, which is also a disease of chloride transport. And we suspect that uh, WNK1 uh, is involved in the regulation of chloride flux, probably in a parallel pathway to uh, the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator. 
So all of the genes that we've identified have uh, defined salt uh, homeostasis as being key for the, for the understanding of blood pressure uh, in humans. This, of course, does not prove that all of the common variants that affect blood pressure will lie in this pathway, uh, but to a certain extent, uh, uh, this may not matter. Uh, it may end up being the case that what we really want to understand are the pathways that are important because that's what we're, is going to be the substrate for uh, understanding how to treat uh, this particular disease. And these findings uh, have a number of implications. One, of course, is if you think about why should salt be so important, humans evolved in an extremely salt-poor environment. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is notoriously salt-poor, uh, and the uh, uh, move to a salt-rich environment, genes that were once adaptive in our ancestral environment may now be contributing to hypertension. And of course, this may contribute to the explanation for why hypertension is so prevalent among African Americans. Other implications, of course, are that treatments that uh, lower salt balance ought to be ideal uh, treatment for hypertension, uh, and uh, it also has implications for how we should think about going after the treatment. Some of these ideas uh, that seemed heretical a few years ago are now starting to be borne out. In the last year, there have been two large randomized prospective trials that have demonstrated superiority of uh, losartan, uh, a, which inhibits uh, the effects of angiotensin II in this pathway, to beta blockers, a standard treatment for uh, uh, hypertension. And the all-hat study was just published in December, 33,000 patients, demonstrating that simple diuretics that cost 10 cents a day are are actually superior uh, or uh, as good as uh, the much more expensive ACE inhibitors and calcium channel blockers, uh, which cost a dollar a day. And finally, these have identified some new targets for antihypertensive uh, treatments. So going forward, uh, obviously we now have the tools to really begin to try to analyze uh, not just these rare forms, but uh, uh, more complicated diseases. Uh, and there remain a number of barriers to progress. Uh, there's obviously, as uh, other people in this room uh, know better than I, a long and expensive route from target to treatment. We need to do a better job of uh, uh, getting from identifying target to developing drugs. There's a woeful deficit that uh, uh, Lee Rosenberg has commented on in developing uh, physician scientists and clinical investigators, and we're developing a very adverse regulatory environment for doing clinical investigation. So despite uh, the wonderful reasons for optimism today, uh, there are a number of hurdles that we're going to have to address. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Uh, great talk. Question. In your patients with Gilliams who are eating extra salt, have you asked them, why did they take more salt before you told them that it would be good for them? Yeah, so the question is, why are these uh, uh, patients who are salt-wasting, how do they know that they should be eating more salt? And it's clear that this is a, a self-selected uh, uh, appetite. Um, Children who have, the, who have two mutant copies of the gene have some quite striking behaviors. Uh, it's not uncommon for them to tell us that uh, they wake up in the middle of the night, go downstairs, uh, and uh, drain the pickle jar of pickle juice and, and you know, drink brine, or uh, will cut up a lemon, pour, put salt on the lemon, and eat the lemon. 
they clearly have a, an extraordinary drive uh, for, for salt intake. What actually is determining that is, uh, is unclear. They have high angiotensin II levels, high aldosterone levels. So it, whether this is uh, in part driving uh, uh, the taste for salt uh, is, uh, I, I think, unclear. Uh, but I think it's a very interesting question that we don't know the answer to. Something simple like just testing what is their We've, we have tried, uh, there, uh, we've done some simple experiments that suggest that uh, they don't have altered taste, uh, but it's very clear that the, there's a very strong, uh, I think, centrally mediated drive. Jim. Yeah. Well, so, so it may not be... Um, it may not be very subtle. It's easy to imagine that if you were a, uh, uh, an early pioneer, uh, bone fracture might have been uh, a major threat to uh, your longevity uh, in terms of your ability to maintain uh, uh, your, uh, your farming lifestyle. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I mean, I think there are too many possibilities, but we're, we're actually trying to formally collect, uh, connect these uh, families. We found... Uh, it's actually very interesting. We rarely publish in the clinical literature. Uh, the, our clinical collaborators asked us to publish this paper in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, which we did. And an unexpected benefit of this was that we thought this was a one-of-a-kind family. And within two weeks, we had half a dozen people who called us up and said, I've got that disease, or a physician who said, I've got a patient who's got that disease. And it turned out that three of them were from Connecticut and had the identical mutation. And by going through the genealogical records, we were able to link them back to uh, a family to a common ancestor uh, about uh, a dozen generations ago. So we're now starting to be able to put together this in order to be able to formally address whether they actually do have uh, longevity. But the most striking uh, element to us was that, you know, many people have asked us, well, don't they have bone cancer? Uh, aren't they susceptible to uh, other malignancies or other bad outcomes? And uh, this doesn't seem to be the case, and we now have uh, about 50 affected individuals, so we would have thought we'd have found it by now. Lee? I wonder if you'd like to speculate um, using all of the lovely work you've done in hypertension. Is hypertension as a complex trait going to be truly polygenic the way people have predicted it was going to be, or is it going to be a very large series of monogenic so the question is, is uh, when we understand hypertension in the general population, will it be uh, a, a highly polygenic trait or will it be many uh, sing single genes with large effect? I think it will be the former. I think uh, in the general population, based on uh, the data that we have uh, to date, I would hazard that, that it's going to be extraordinarily uh, polygenic uh, because there don't seem to be single genes with large effect as you look across uh, thousands of genomes that have been done now. And so my uh, speculation is that it may be that at the end of the day the best we're going to do with hypertension for the next 10 years at least is to understand the pathways and be able to identify what are the plausible targets that we ought to be going after. I think this work has uh, pretty strongly implicated uh, the epithelial sodium channel as the next best target to go after, and uh, the pharmaceutical industry, I think, is picking this up. Okay, thank you very much. I, I can't help uh, adding a small editorial that, uh, to me, and I've been following this for a long time, it really illustrates the fact that having a background in basic biology of uh, the model organisms really is a good way to understand medicine. 
And whenever, that, whenever this issue comes up of how we're wasting the time of the medical students in basic biology, uh, I uh, think about Lifton. So well, now you know why. <clears throat> it's all the same biology.